Hello, friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today is a very good day because I'm on the phone with Daniel Quinn. Daniel Quinn was born in Omaha, Nebraska, where he graduated from Creighton Preparatory School. He went on to St. Louis University and then to the University of Vienna, Austria. In 1975, he left his career as a publisher and became a freelance writer. Quinn is best known for his book, Ishmael, published in 1992, which won the Turner Tomorrow Fellowship Award in 1991. Ishmael is part of a trilogy that includes the story of B and my Ishmael. There are many other books that Daniel Quinn has written, but what I would prefer would be for us to go straight into a conversation together. I just want to say that um, the books Ishmael and the story of B and also the book after Dachau uh, have been a great inspiration to me through my life. So welcome, Daniel. And uh, my first question would be to ask you if you think that the tipping point is now more pointed than ever before. thinking, uh, how can we separate um, the, the possible ecstasy of sex from procreation? It would it would seem to me that um, uh, sex is one of the gifts that I, that have been given, perhaps to all all animals, inclu- including humans, but that 
sex with procreation cannot continue? And I think perhaps the answer would be, and thank you for asking, uh, uh, for asking me, is that um, if we can enjoy the pleasure without uh, the ego that goes into making copies of ourselves, if we can just concentrate on the pleasure and the communion, then uh, things would go better. Well, our, our population growth is not a matter of, of procreation being out of control. Uh, for the first uh, three million years of, of human life, the human population was more or less stable. Um, it became unstable about 10,000 years ago when, we be, when our culture, our ancestors, um, became agriculturalists. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in, the, in the natural community, what you find is that a, a given population will grow to a certain point, and uh, then its food supply will diminish because it's eating it. And as its food supply diminishes, the population diminishes. And as the population diminishes, the food supply recovers. And then the, then the population increases again. And this, this cycling is what keeps Africa from being overrun by lions mm-hmm. or giraffes. And it keeps giraffes still in existence and keeps lions still in existence. Uh, but we, uh, we got rid of this uh, feedback system when we began to grow food at will. Uh, so whenever we wanted, whenever food became scarce, we didn't, uh, our population didn't decrease. We simply increased food production. And so population continued to increase because there was more food. And then we increased food production again because there were more people. And then there was more people because there was more food. And this continued up to the present time. And every year, uh, we are told we must increase food production to feed our growing population. And of course, our population is growing precisely because we are continuing to increase food production. Um, the same will happen with any species. If if a farmer wants more cows, he knows that he has to increase, he has to get more food for them. He can't, he can't get more, more cows, he can't get uh, 20 cows on the food that he is providing that keeps up 10 cows. If he wants 200 chickens, he has to increase the amount of food he is giving 100 chickens. And so long, I call this the food race because every it's like the um, like the arms race of the Cold War, where every advance on the Soviet side was answered by an advance on our side, mm-hmm. which then evoked uh, an advance on the Soviet side, which was answered by a, a, an advance on our side. It was an upward spiral that had no ending until finally Gorbachev said, "I just walk away." I, I refuse to, to go on with the, with the race anymore. And uh, this is the food race for us, is that we, every increase in food production is answered by an increase in population, and every increase in population is answered by an increase in food production. 
us towards extinction. And it, it, the only, only solution is to walk away from it. The problem is not that we procreate too much, it's that we have too much food. We need too much food. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Dan, so you think that uh, the food situation created by the spread of agriculture is as dangerous as the nuclear situation? Oh, definitely. Definitely. uh, All of the other things that that we're facing, all the other crises, uh, if we stop all of those, we will still still be in, in the midst of of the sixth extinction and still feeding ourselves to extinction. Uh, the the end of, uh, of readily available petroleum, for example, is going to have a, a uh, very um, possibly catastrophic effect uh, on civilization. Uh, the uh, uh, global warming, of course, uh, is, is a threat. Uh, but in, unless we um, unless we get a handle on our disastrous population growth, none of these other things matter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, tell us your ideas of how we can make ourselves whole again, if you think we can. Uh, yes. Um, would be surprised to realize that if you could if you could bring uh, Aboriginal people into our into our cities and into our civilization, give them a tour, their perception of, of us would be that we were very poor, and that we have a lot of toys, but that we we're fundamentally very poor. Uh, whereas they themselves are very rich um, in the things that, that really matter to human beings. Um, they have a social organization, the social organization uh, that humans evolved with, which is called the tribe, which worked for humans for millions of years and still works for humans wherever where the tribal peoples are still allowed to live the way they always have. And uh, tribal peoples have some a very uh, very valuable thing, and that is cradle grave security. Uh, they know that so long as the tribe is there, uh, they will never be out of out of uh, out of home, and never uh, go hungry, unless everyone in the tribe is going hungry. Um, So long as, as as the tribe is safe, um, they will they will be they will be safe themselves. Whereas we all know very well that uh, our lives hang by a thread. At any time, uh, we could lose our our income, our savings. Right now, we're in a very uh, uh, unsettled economic time, which is as has uh, ruined countless numbers of people in uh, among tribal peoples. Um, sickness uh, does not 
big catastrophe. You say beautifully in your writings, you say it's not the wealth of products, 
it's the way of support. And uh, this hopefully... Yeah, get support, get support, yes. And I'm sure you are hearing of more and more people who are living by support as opposed to um, consumerism. I can't say that they all report to me. <laughs> right. But, but your, um, perhaps through your website... Yes. So when I was reading you yesterday, I I thought... In a tribal way, there ought to be a law that outlaws laws. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Aboriginal people, the Aborig- tribal people have laws. They, have, they each have their own, their own tribal laws. But the difference is uh, their laws are not punitive laws. They are not laws that tell you what you can't do. They tell you what to do when something happens, when something bad happens. Um, and they are supportive laws. Uh, so, for example, if if, um, if a, a man falls in love with a woman, not his wife, and uh, the woman falls in love with him, this is a situation. It isn't prohibited. Rather, there's a way of dealing with it that the, the tribe knows. And it isn't, it isn't punitive. It isn't, doesn't punish them. But it's, it's a way of making it making things right again. And that's what the way law, the way the law functions in tribal lives, as opposed to the way it functions in our lives. Uh, we prohibit things that we know people are going to do, and then we punish them for doing it. Yeah. I, I read a line that I really like, which is, Religions are the creation of bereft people. <laughs> Could you speak a little bit about that? Uh, I don't think it's my line, is it? Yes, it is. It is, <laughs> it is for sure. <laughs> uh-huh. I, don't rem- I don't remember everything I've written. Um, of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would say that this, um, the... Uh, Religions, um, in in the sense that we understand religions today, began to appear about the time civilization itself began to appear, uh, which is about five thousand years after the birth of agriculture, when uh, uh, when villages became uh, towns and towns became cities and cities became empires. Um, as, as this occurred, uh, hierarchies grew up uh, with, uh, the, with the people at the top who had the power and all the good things of life and uh, people in the middle who had many of the good things in life uh, with less power and then the people at the bottom who had to struggle uh, to get along. These were the work, worker people, the poor. And it was the, the, the rest of these, of these uh, civilizations, of these cities and, and empires that uh, gave birth to uh, religion, uh, 
misery of their lives. Uh-huh. And of course, uh, right up to uh, uh, Christianity, that continued to be the case. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, pe- uh, the meek. Shall inherit the earth. Yes. And uh, Jesus painted a picture of, of, of paradise as the uh, place where the, uh, the poor will be rich and the rich will be poor. Making, giving people a promise of something to come that they didn't have in their, in their own lives. So I guess that's, that's how I uh, respond to your question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which leads me to asking you, how do you think we can connect to the primal intelligence, to the intelligence of the earth? Well, uh, people ask me whether I'm a religious person, whether I have a religion, and I say that I'm an animist, which is uh, not really a religion in, in, a, in the same sense that Catholicism is a religion. Rather, it's a religious worldview I view the world as a sacred place and humans as belonging in the sacred place. Whereas to take Christianity, for example, it sees the world as merely a stopping place, a testing place, testing ground, um, an entry hall to our true home, which is uh, after death, um, and not as a sacred place in particular. And that if it were a sacred place, we wouldn't really belong there because we're not sacred. We're all born flawed and have to be saved. So my, my vision of uh, the world and uh, humanity is, is different. Um, but it's, uh, animism is not recognized as a major religion uh, because it doesn't support the, uh, the mythology of our of our culture, which which sees man as created to uh, conquer and rule the world, uh, the animist animist view does not envision man to be such a creature, and animist view does not see the world as, uh, or it doesn't see. Uh, I have to think if I'm uh, if I believe in God, I. Say I, I don't know the number of the gods. I don't know whether the number is zero uh, or one or many. Uh, but I believe that the uh, I think that the uh, the uh, universe is inspired by divinity, uh, and I don't. But I don't know. I don't know the number of the gods. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a. a It's a a wonderful answer. So it prompts me to ask you, when you say the word divinity, can you describe what that means to you? Okay. 
So then, uh, what do you think happens to the human animal after death? for having written Ishmael. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, how about this? Let's see if we can... I, I see that human dignity is placed differently according to what tribe we belong to. Would you, would you say some words about that? Does it, is that evocative for you? Okay, well, that, um, that for instance, uh, the role of woman is viewed differently uh, according to what tribe you belong to. Should we have uh, one way of thinking, or is it, is it all right to um, have different ways we think about... Uh, what the right place for us is. I would say this, that wherever you find uh, an excellent Aboriginal people, you find people who have, who have a successful way of life. Evolution uh, eliminates failure. It doesn't, it doesn't create perfection. It simply uh, it rewards what works but it doesn't, it doesn't create what, what is perfect. And so if you go among uh, various tribal people, you will find uh, different, um, I guess you would say different standards uh, about um, um, themselves, the way they think about themselves and they think about each other. Uh, but whatever it is, whatever way it is, it's one that they are comfortable with. Because if they weren't, um, they would they would uh, break up and cease to exist as a people, as a tribe. Mm-hmm. So there is room for m- many different ways of living. I've said uh, and have been widely misunderstood. I've said there is no one right way for people to live. Never has been. Never will be. Is that there is one right way for people to live, and we have it, and everyone in the world must be made to live the way we live. And we're still uh, trying very hard to make everyone in the world exactly like us. Well, a big uh, a big problem with this way of thinking um, would be scapegoating, and uh, I'm wondering if uh, you've uh, been. Uh, scapegoated a lot for your ideas? Uh, no, uh, I, I was really rather surprised. Um, uh, when Ishmael came out, I was expecting to be denounced from the pulpit. <laughs> um, and in fact, preachers were recommending my book in, in their 
in their newsletters, in their bulletins, and from the pulpit of many different different faiths. Uh, and that came to an end uh, when I published the story of B. influence on the environmental movement, the eco-psychology movement, and uh, I was wondering how you see the evolution of, um, of the ecological movement at this point. you like to talk about at Woomeroo, the world that you go to? Yeah, Ishmael was a book, well, say this, I wrote eight different versions of a book struggling to, to get on paper what I wanted to say. And uh, each version was different. Uh, they were not Ishmael, they did not have a guerrilla teacher or anything close to that, and Ishmael was the eighth version. And between, um, in between versions, you know, after, after I've put, written a hundred pages or a thousand pages and threw them all away, uh, I would, I would uh, spend some time uh, writing short fiction, uh, which was very uh, uh, quirky and eccentric, uh, and, um, and, and oftentimes very difficult to place for that reason. Um, but it, I did, did eventually place all of my short stories. And so um, uh, just recently I thought I would pull all those stories together and publish them together under the title At Woomeroo because I thought of uh, Ed Woomer as, as the place I visited in between versions of the book that I was working on, the work that became Ishmael. Does that answer your question? Where does, the, wor- long answer. Where does the word Woomeroo come from? I don't remember. 
remember. Okay. Remember. Okay. So, um, what are your feelings for the gorilla Ishmael now? How do you feel about your gorilla? <laughs> well, I have great affection for my gorilla. Uh, we, we, for the last few years, we've had a, we've had a, we've done our work as as a corporation. It's called QDQ Incorporated, and the QDQ stood for Quinn Gorilla Quinn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, he is. Uh, he's made a tremendous difference in my life, um, and made a difference, a tremendous difference in a lot of lives. Uh, uh, Ishmael and, and others of my books are, are used in, uh, in schools, from mid-school to graduate school. Courses as varied as philosophy and uh, theology, history, uh, psychology, uh, biology, archaeology, anthropology, political science, economics, and so on. So they reached uh, uh, reached countless countless uh, minds. Uh, Israel has. <laughs> I I remember they. That gorilla, uh, I can't, I do not imagine that gorilla not to be real. Since uh, ten ten pages into Ishmael, that gorilla is so real for me. <laughs> and so many people I talk to say that gorilla, that gorilla is something. It really changed my life. And so it brings me to the question of memory. I mean, perhaps. For me, one of the things you did with this uh, this dear gorilla is that you opened up channels to memories that I didn't exist for me before. Do you get that from a lot of people? No, uh, no, I haven't. I haven't said that in particular. No, I hear a lot from people who say, "Thank you, Mr. Quinn, for showing me that I'm not crazy." <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's it's while when I read Ishmael, I I just uh, because I had a very Cartesian upbringing. I grew up in Paris, and uh, I I thought, well, I forgot all that. Of course, that's true, but I forgot about it. And uh, education, so to speak, education did a good job at at erasing my memory. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, how does it feel to have opened up original memory? Uh, well, uh, people, um, all everything I hear from people inspires me and um, 
continues to, to make me uh, feel that my life has been worthwhile. Uh, and I, uh, I hear from people almost daily telling me about the effect that uh, Ishmael has had on them, or my books have had on them. It was extremely difficult for me to get to a point where I realized that I had really put to paper everything I have to say. That was about um, five or six years ago when I went into a deep depression. I realized that uh, probably uh, many of the thinkers, uh, they weren't necessarily writing up to the day they died. They uh, said what they had to say and then finished their lives doing something else. And so I, one of the projects was, was at Woomero. Well, you've created this website uh, <laughs> since then. And, uh, it has to be one of the one of the biggest websites in the, in existence. It is. It is. Got all of my speeches and all of my essays and the answers to five hundred questions that people have asked me. So, do you consider now, like you did when you gave the talk at Bioneers, um, that there's hope for our species? A lot of. Um, a lot of species, I know people ask you that a lot, but a lot of species have become extinct. Uh, do you think there's hope for this particular species? I, I, never, I never give up hope. The, um, what is being said now is that, the, that 150 species a day are becoming extinct because of um, our need to uh, cutting down forests, and uh, plowing under land that supports other species in order to support our species. I, I don't give up hope on human species, but I know that the uh, people, uh, the, the, the question that people ask me is, but what should I do? And what Ishmael says to uh, his student in Ishmael is, teach a hundred what you've learned here and encourage each of them to teach a hundred. Changed minds is the hope of the future for us. And this this seems like a passive thing, but it's not a passive thing. Because I I go back to the the Renaissance, uh, which was um, the most uh, remarkable period of change in our civilization occurred because People changed their minds mm-hmm. about a number of fundamental things. For example, um, in the past, in the, in the Middle Ages, it was thought that certain knowledge could be gained by consulting the great minds of the past and by uh, thinking about what made sense so that it was firmly believed that that heavy objects fall to earth faster than light objects. And Aristotle said so. Mm-hmm. But of course, Galileo said, that's not good enough. A better, a better way to uh, certain knowledge is through observation and experimentation. And he performed experiments to prove that light objects and heavy objects fall the same rate. Uh, and that was the beginning of a gigantic 
many and many other revolutions followed. Of course, not all not all of them perhaps uh, beneficial, but they, they did change the world. And because because of changed minds, and the, you can't you can't legislate changed minds. Uh, you can't pass a law that forces people to think a different way. People change minds because people around them have think about things differently. I've had teachers say, I don't use your books in my class, but I teach a different way now. And so his mind has changed, and so the minds of his students are changed as well, even though they, they don't necessarily open a book of mine. And that's fine. That's the way it's going to happen if it happens. That's correct. I, I'd like to ask you... Um, first of all, do you think the 1960s were sort of renaissance? <laughs> and then to get in closer in the microscope, that perhaps uh, LSD was a, a tool um, for people to observe and experiment? Uh, yes, uh, the, uh, the narrator of, of Ishmael, remembers the 60s and remember his hope uh, that the revolution that they they were foreseeing when it would be dancing in the streets that unfortunately it sort of fizzled in the later 70s and 80s as people grew up the kids grew up get started getting married started having children starting having different obligations Uh, the free and easy life of the 60s was no longer possible. And so I had the feeling um, that when what was missing to the 60s was a text. Of course, the, the Russian Revolution had a text, and without it, uh, it would never have come about. And um, I felt that I was... With my books, I was creating the text for a new revolution. Bravo, bravo, and it's happening. It's um, this is our uh, our purpose here at Future Primitive is to um, give support to people who want to change their minds, and uh, it seems that it's really happening, and uh, that. The text we're talking about with you has had a great and is having a great influence on this. Yes, that's very good to hear. Uh, so, um, Daniel, what would you like to say in closing to our listeners? Oh, I'm afraid I, I, I never have anything on hand. <laughs>
they have to build a new model that makes the old model obsolete. That's the, uh, the challenge that we face now. Well, I'm very grateful to you, Daniel Quinn. Very pleased to have the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right.